Section one of Life of Edward the Black Prince. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Life of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton. Chapter one Early Years of the Black Prince. On the fifteenth of June, in the year 1330, there were great rejoicings in the royal palace of Woodstock. One Thomas Pryor came hastening to the young King Edward III to tell him that his queen had just given birth to a son. The king in his joy granted the bearer of this good news an annual pension of forty marks. We can well imagine how he hurried to see his child. When he found him in the arms of his nurse, Joan of Oxford, overjoyed at the sight he gave the good woman a pension of ten pounds a year and granted the same sum to matilda plumtree the rocker of the prince's cradle perhaps with edward's thoughts of joy at the birth of his son were mingled some feelings of shame it was three years since he had been crowned and yet he was king only in name he was nothing but a tool in the hands of his unscrupulous mother isabella and her ambitious favourite mortimer he was very young not quite eighteen and had not yet had sufficient knowledge or experience to know how to break the bonds within which he was held but with the new dignity of father came to him a sense of his humiliating position he would wish that his own son on reviewing his youth should have different thoughts of his father than he had he can hardly have borne to look back upon his own youth with its shameful memories he had seen his father edward the second by his dissipated life and his slavish devotion to his favourites alienate the affection of his subjects and provoke the barons to rise against him then when peace had for a while been restored he had gone with his mother to france he had seen her refuse to return to england at the king's demand he had watched the growth of the disgraceful intimacy between her and roger mortimer one of the rebel earls at last a powerless instrument in their hands he had been taken by her and mortimer to invade england and edward the second's throne was attacked and overthrown by his own wife and son the rebellion was entirely successful none were found to espouse the cause of the despised king he was obliged formally to give up the crown to his son and on the twentieth of january thirteen twenty seven edward the third then only in his fourteenth year was proclaimed king all we know of the part taken by edward the third himself in these proceedings is that he refused to receive the crown without the sanction of his father but he had no real power all was in the hands of the queen and mortimer before the end of the year feeling insecure while edward the second was still alive they caused him to be secretly murdered in the castle where he was imprisoned soon after they married the young king to philippa daughter of the count of hainault a union destined in every way to contribute to his happiness and to the good of the kingdom the power of queen isabella and mortimer continued unchecked till the birth of prince edward it was a troubled world in which the little prince first saw the light 
for three years the english people had been subjected to a rule they detested and their discontent had been gradually growing one attempt at rebellion had been made by the king's uncle edmund earl of kent but it had only ended in the execution of the simple high-minded earl this had increased tenfold the hatred with which mortimer was regarded edward the third felt that as a father he was no longer a mere boy and could not continue to submit to his own degradation it was not difficult to find people ready and eager to enter into his plans a conspiracy was formed of which the queen and mortimer seemed to have had dim suspicions they tried to avert the danger by keeping edward with them in nottingham castle but he succeeded in gaining over the governor of the castle and a body of armed men was introduced at midnight through a subterranean passage they broke into the room where mortimer was and after a short struggle made him prisoner the queen who was in the next room burst in with agonized entreaties fair son fair son oh spare the gentle mortimer soon afterwards mortimer was brought to trial before a parliament summoned by edward and was sentenced to be hanged queen isabella was kept in honourable confinement till her death twenty-seven years after edward the third now took the entire management of affairs into his own hands and soon found that he had plenty to do whilst the little prince was still in his cradle his father was already perplexed by the events which were to lead to those wars in which both played such a brilliant part edward the third's grandfather edward the first had cherished the dream of uniting under his own rule england scotland and wales at times he had been very near the fulfilment of this dream but scottish love of independence had been too strong for him the scots found powerful leaders they struggled fearlessly against apparently hopeless odds and at last secured the throne to robert bruce the english however would not give up the hope of conquering scotland one of the most unpopular acts of queen isabella and mortimer had been the conclusion of a peace with scotland called the treaty of northampton in which they had recognized robert bruce's king edward the third therefore was acting quite in accordance with the wishes of his people when he interfered in scottish affairs the moment seemed hopeful robert bruce was dead his son david was a mere child and a new claimant to the throne had arisen in edward balliol whose father in former days had struggled for the crown against the bruces balliol was successful and david bruce had to fly to france then edward demanded that balliol should recognize him as suzerain that is should acknowledge the overlordship of the english king and do him homage as one of his vassals balliol consented and this in the end lost him his crown the scottish nobles who had fought so bravely for their independence would own no allegiance to a monarch who could tamely submit to the king of england they revolted and chased balliol from the throne it was then that edward was called upon to interfere actively he summoned an army and marched against the revolted scots they were completely crushed at the battle of halidon hill near berwick 
Berwick itself fell into Edward's hands and remained part of the English dominions ever afterwards. Balliol was restored to the throne and maintained there by Edward III. The Scottish barons, however, still clung to the house of Bruce, and they would not recognize Balliol, the sub-king of the King of England. They turned to France for help, and France was willing enough to listen to them and seize this opportunity of striking a blow at the growing power of the English crown. Already in the reign of Edward I she had aided the Scots against the English, and it soon became clear to Edward III that he could not hope for submission from Scotland until he had put an end to the intervention of France. So we see that it is in the struggle between Scotland and England that we must look for the chief cause of the great French war, which was to drain the resources of both countries for a hundred years. We shall see as we follow the course of events how brilliantly this war opened and how eager the English were to engage in it. England, since Edward III had become king in fact as well as in name, seemed inspired with a new life. The king was young and ambitious, anxious to promote his people's good, and eager to gain glory for himself. Commerce was extending on every side and largely increasing the wealth of the country. National life beat vigorously, as we see, amongst other things, in the increased use of the English tongue. Formerly, French had been the common language taught in the schools, but now it began gradually to fall into disuse, and before the end of Edward's reign, the English language was to win its final triumph by the appearance of Chaucer, the first great English poet, and Wycliffe, the first great English prose writer. The English people were eager for some great undertaking, and from the very first the idea of the French war was extremely popular. The people wished it more than Edward himself, and the Parliament urged him to assert his claim to the French crown. It is not likely that anyone ever thought this claim to be serious or considered it to be anything but a useful pretext for the war. Such as it was, Edward's claim to the French crown came through his mother Isabella, granddaughter of Philip III the Bold, King of France. Her three brothers had reigned one after another, and all died without male issue. On the death of the last, Charles IV, the crown passed to his cousin, Philip of Valois, son of Charles of Valois, the second son of Philip the Bold. Edward III, in asserting his claim, had to maintain that though according to the Salic law females could not inherit the crown, they could transmit it to males. He could never have seriously urged such a plea if other causes had not led to a war with France, and in time made it useful for him to assume the title of King of France. There can be no doubt that Edward was grievously provoked by the French before he made up his mind to engage in war. The restless ambition of Philip of Valois produced a general feeling of insecurity. His pirate ships interfered with the trade of the Channel. He made constant encroachments upon the English possessions in France, and frequently threatened an invasion of England, whilst he thwarted in every possible way Edward's policy with regard to Scotland. 
under these circumstances it was natural for the english king to go to war though if the war had not aimed at conquest it would have been better for england in the end edward the third however was full of youthful ambition he did not care to look into the future but rushed into the war as if it had been a great tournament in which he and his knights might distinguish themselves so active were the fears of french invasion during the first years of edward the third's reign that we find orders for putting the isle of wight and the southern coast into a state of defence and in thirteen thirty five the young prince was sent to nottingham for safety he must have been early accustomed to hear war talked about and probably the chief part of his education was concerned with military exercises we know little of his youth except that he was educated under the direction of dr walter burley of merton college oxford which since its foundation by walter de merton the chancellor of henry the third had produced most of the men distinguished in england for their learning dr burley on account of his fame for learning and piety had been appointed queen's almoner as his reputation increased at court he was finally appointed tutor to the prince in accordance with the custom of the times many other young gentlemen were educated in common with prince edward so that companionship might lend an increased interest to his studies among others simon burley a young kinsman of dr burley's was admitted to share these advantages he became a great favourite with the prince and in time was made knight of the garter and was entrusted with the education of the prince's son richard of bordeaux we can form a pretty good idea of the kind of education received by prince edward and his companions chivalry was then at its height and it was necessary for every gentleman to be skilled in all knightly exercises an accomplished knight must be endowed with beauty with strength and agility of body he must be skilled in music be able to dance gracefully and run swiftly to wrestle and sit well on horseback above all he must be skilful in the management of arms and must thoroughly understand hunting and hawking in these accomplishments were young edward and his companions trained and we cannot doubt that he who was the very type of the chivalric spirit in its highest development early learnt to excel in all knightly exercises there exists a rhyming chronicle in french of the life of edward the black prince by the herald of sir john chandos who was so constantly with the prince that we may believe that his herald writes from personal knowledge of the prince's character he says this frank prince of whom i tell you thought not but of loyalty of free courage and gentleness and endowed was he with such prowess that he wished all the days of his life to give up all his study to the holding of justice and integrity and in that was he nurtured from the time of his infancy of his own noble and free will he learned liberality for goodness and nobleness were in his heart perfectly from the first commencement of his life and youth he was it is well known so preux chivalrous so hardy and so valiant so courteous and so wise he loved so well holy church with all his heart in every form the most holy trinity the festival and holiday there is a tradition that prince edward studied at queen's college oxford and this may perhaps have been the case as queen's college was founded by his mother queen philippa but the story rests 
on no authentic evidence during his early youth various honours and dignities were bestowed upon him he was made duke of cornwall at the parliament held at westminster in thirteen thirty seven this is the first time that the title duke appears in english history in thirteen thirty eight when edward the third was about to leave england to begin his war with france he appointed his son prince edward to be guardian of the kingdom during his absence as the prince was then but eight years old this was naturally only a nominal office it was not until thirteen forty three that he was created by parliament prince of wales End of section one